Please turn in your Bibles with me to Psalm 54. Let's ask our God that He would be with us in the preaching and the hearing of His Word. Let's pray. O God, make Your Word a swift word, passing from the ear to the heart, from the heart to the lip and conversation, so that as the rain does its work, so may Your Word to accomplish the goal for which it was given. Your word does not return void. Be with us as we hear it. Let it sink deep into our souls and into our lives. We ask in Jesus' name by your spirit. Amen. Hear God's word from Psalm 54. This is the very word of God. To the choir master with stringed instruments, a maskil of David, When the Ziphites went and told Saul, is not David hiding among us? O God, save me by your name and vindicate me by your might. O God, hear my prayer. Give ear to the words of my mouth. For strangers have risen against me. Ruthless men seek my life. They do not set God before themselves. Selah. Behold. God is my helper. The Lord is the upholder of my life. He will return the evil to my enemies. In your faithfulness, put an end to them. With a free will offering, I will sacrifice to you. I will give thanks to your name, O Lord, for it is good. For he has delivered me from every trouble. And my eye has looked in triumph on my enemies. The grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our God stands forever. Thanks be to God for this word. Have you ever been like me and read a psalm like this where men are seeking David's life and you think, I cannot relate. Nobody's trying to kill me. I don't have those kinds of enemies. But when we peel back the layers of what's going on in David's life, we start to see next layer down, he's really facing betrayal and doubts. And the next layer down, potential anxiety over his position in life. And we start to see a very relatable emotion. And we see very relatable experiences. But back to the idea of enemies. If I tell you that you do have enemies, many of you will start to think of the culture wars. And those in the distance who are conceptual enemies with very practical realities, but people who are fighting the ideas of what you hold dear. Or maybe you think of a broad concept of antagonism toward Christianity in particular, or to the things of God. This is evidence of real enemies, of the evil one. But maybe it hits even closer to home, and your job is at risk due to ideological conflicts with your employer. That's not the only kind of enemy, though, that I think we can relate to in this passage. The idea of enemies is actually more widely applicable, especially when we see that David describes these men as ruthless men who do not set God before themselves in verse 3. You know, the most painful attacks often come 
from those we love the deepest and who are closest to us. Maybe when you think of attacks from ruthless people, you think of a specific close friend whose words and actions were hurtful. And maybe there's not yet been repair of their relationship. Maybe you consider how the ones that you thought should stand up for you, especially those who claim the name of Jesus, they abandon you. And they acted like cowards or they showed you no grace. Maybe the very ones who should be showing the most generosity simply don't give you the time of day or an ounce of dignity. If you've been hurt by your family or your spouse or your ex-spouse, this psalm is for you. If you've been hurt by friends, this psalm is for you. If you've been brushed aside by your employer or other life circumstances, this psalm is for you. The Prince of Preachers, Charles Spurgeon, summarized the main point of this psalm in this way. He says, the vigor of faith is the death of anxiety and the birth of security. The vigor, that is the health or the strength of faith, is the death of anxiety and the birth of security. When we take that idea and we look at what's going on in the life of David, we see why he summarized the main point like this. Because what David endured in this psalm, his his anxiety doesn't subside because his circumstances change. His anxiety doesn't subside because things go his way as he wishes they would on his timeline His anxiety subsides because his faith in his God was strengthened. He looks with fresh eyes on the God who sustained him, even as he called upon him during this battle. And he found security not in the temporal defeat of his enemies who sought to kill him, but in the promises of God. And then in the promise that God would be the one to make all things right. And in the promise that God is the warrior who defeats the truest enemies, the enemies of darkness and evil. You see, the psalm tells us David was being hunted. You see that in the, the title and you see it in verse 3. This connects to the story back in 1 Samuel 23 where we see Saul was in pursuit of David's life. He was trying to kill him because David was to be king. And that was to replace Saul's position on the throne. And David had fled and he had gone to the city of Keilah. And in Keilah, he found out that they were about to betray him to Saul. So he fled to another city. He went to Ziph, the land of Ziph. And he thought here he has found a place where he can hide. He thought he's found friends who would help cover for him. Yet we see in the title, even they turn him over to Saul and say, look, David's here with us. And so Saul pursued David into the land of Ziph and David fled there into the land of Maon. And as Saul was closing in on David, God intervened. He sent the Philistines to raid the land of Israel. So Saul had to be distracted and go deal with that. So David had respite for some time. Now, that battle did continue. Saul did return, pursuing David, trying to kill him. And a a few verses later, just in, in 1 Samuel we see that it does end up that Saul is killed. But for the time, no one seems to be on David's side. It feels like the world has turned against him. His own people are hunting him and the ones that he trusted turned against him. 
and turned him over to the one who's trying to kill him. And this is what David speaks of in verse three, when he says, strangers have risen against me. Ruthless men seek my life. They do not set God before themselves. At this point, David must be asking all kinds of questions. Did God really call me to be king? If so, why has he made it so difficult? Why would God allow godless men, those who do not set God before themselves to have victory over me, his anointed one? Will I live to see the promises that God has made? We're going to look at how David addresses his anxiety and his security in this passage and how the Lord is with him in these. First of all, David's anxiety. We see in verses 2 and 5. In verse 2, you see he prays. And in verse 5, he gives praise. Are you anxious? Does something about your future scare you? Does something about your present condition make you tremble in fear? Do you have an enemy seeking to bring you down in one way or another? David understood that. And how does he seek to kill this anxiety in the middle of being hunted, in the middle of being betrayed? He didn't seek revenge himself. He leaned upon the all-powerful arms of his God whom he trusted to bring justice in his timing. It's good that we long for justice. It's good that we long to see evil punished and good rewarded. But David properly waits for God to do it in his timing. Let's look first at David's prayer in verse 2. O God, hear my prayer. Give ear to the words of my mouth. He cried out not to a military alliance with another tribe or another nation. He cried out not for a truce with Saul that would compromise God's appointed kingship for David. He cried out to God. This is a God who hears. So David in this moment takes God up on his offer to hear and to hear the words of my mouth. God, listen to me. The pastor, Dane Ortland succinctly states here that David looks up, not out. In his prayer. In the face of his anxiety and turmoil, he looks up. You and I have this exact same access to God in our anxiety. We too have access to the ear of God and his presence is open to us, to those who pray in Christ, because Jesus has torn that veil to invite us into God's presence. We have access to that throne of grace. To apply this concept, look up, not out. To apply that concept concept has direct import for you and for me in our times of trouble, just like it did for David. First Peter 5, this is New Testament age. Peter says, Humble yourselves, therefore, under the mighty hand of God, so that at the proper time he may exalt you, casting all your anxieties on him, because he cares for you. And in Matthew 11, Jesus said, Come to me, all who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. And Paul says in Philippians 4, do not be anxious about anything. And that's not an empty command. The context here is the Lord is at hand. Therefore, do not be anxious about anything, but in everything by prayer and supplication with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God. David in the psalm of lament is pouring out his heart and his anxieties and his control of the situation to his God in prayer as he looks up to him. 
What a blessed means of grace this is, this gift of prayer. And in his prayer, the Spirit was doing his work as comforter, the same Spirit that we have in Christ. David prayed, and in his prayer, he waited. He waited for God to administer justice. So often we quickly want to take things into our hands and to make them right right now. Somebody has wronged me. Let me fix it. Verse five, David says, he will return the evil to my enemies. This is a statement you can take, take to the eternal bank of heaven. God will not let you suffer harm without justice. God will not let you suffer harm without justice. And you might say, but I have been harmed in so many ways and it has not been made right. God's not done. God will not let you suffer harm without justice. For David, he knew this truth deeply because just a couple chapters later, he had the opportunity to take justice into his own hands and to kill his enemy who pursued his life. But twice he didn't. He trusted the Lord to administer vengeance. Vengeance is God's. He will repay. And David believed this deeply. So David then was able to live in this moment in the freedom, not of trying to get back, but the freedom of dependence on his God and of gratitude, the freedom of thanksgiving and praise. He was not dominated by anger toward his enemies. He was not dominated by frustration with God for not doing things the way he wanted. Even as his enemies remained in pursuit of his blood. Now, certainly David did get a foretaste of this ultimate justice because in time and space, all his enemy was killed and David was made king and he was exalted in victory over his enemy. That's why, in part, perhaps in verse 7, David can say, For God has delivered me from every trouble, and my eye has looked in triumph on my enemies. But even that is not the ultimate judgment that David was waiting for. You see, in verse 7, there seems to be more going on here than just the defeat of a single enemy. We don't know if David had written this Psalms in in the lull of of the pursuit where, where Saul was distracted with the Philistines. We don't know if he wrote it later after he had been made king. But we see that he's waiting for something bigger. Because for much of David's life, there there were wanted posters with his face on them. For much of David's life, he was, he had many trials. Even though the people that he had trusted have turned against him, and he's he's still dealing with the pain of that, David can see through what has been done to him and rest on something greater than a circumstantial fix. Look at verse 7 again. What's implied here when he says, He has delivered me from every trouble. Is that David has an eternal perspective in mind here. Do we really think that David had no more problems? Do we think that he arrived at the life that the flesh desires? No trials, no pains, abundant riches, comfort, ease. Could he have documented every moment of his life on TikTok and become the envy of the world? 
No, we know David had all kinds of troubles, some self-inflicted by his sin, some not. So David cannot mean, I have no more trouble and my life is easy. What does he mean then when he says that the Lord has delivered him from every trouble? David means that there is a victory that is found over and above our earthly circumstances. And it is far greater and it is far more real and far more lasting than a time-bound victory over a single enemy. It is a heavenly perspective that David has. His mind has been able to escape the fog of the valley in which he finds himself. And he has been lifted above the distractions of his difficult life to see the heavenly eternal trajectory given to him by his great faithful God. And as he prayed elsewhere, indeed, the lines have fallen for him in pleasant places because he has all good things in the presence of his God. And all troubles are gone in his God. He can see the brilliance of the sun above the rain clouds. When David says God has delivered him from every trouble, he means that he has confidence in his God. As verse 4 says, he's my helper, upholder of my life. And that trust in God is a victory of the greatest kind. It is strengthened faith. It is the strengthened faith that sees the end of anxiety. It's the strengthened faith that sees surety grow, and it's freedom from the difficulty of the day. Now, it's not an Eastern or mystical or Stoic escapism. He's not denying the reality of the difficulty of life. It's not transcendental meditation. It is latching on to God's word. It is latching on to the promises that God has given. He trusts God. He has chosen to admit that the truth of God's promises will last despite the distractions of the devil and despite the distractions of his life. This is faith. It's taking God at his word when everything else seems to contradict it. David means he's not stoically, again, escaped the difficulties of life. He's not denied that the difficulty is real. But in the difficulties, he trusts God as the mighty warrior who has beat his true enemies for him. He looks to God's win over the forces of evil for evidence of God's power. He doesn't look to the ease of his situation to determine whether or not God is powerful. He knows that God has promised to kill wickedness and he believes it even as he is being pursued because he has a rock that is higher than any power or authority in this world. He has that peace that passes understanding. He has a helper and an upholder of his life and on him he rests. And therefore he has found triumph in every trouble. And as David's anxiety is put to rest by his prayer and by his waiting for the Lord He knows that his salvation comes only from the hand of his God. He knows that the seed of the woman will crush the head of the serpent. He doesn't have to see it with his eyes right now because he has seen it with his spirit and will see it with his eyes one day and he looks forward to that day. God will win. And in that, David himself is delivered from the power of the enemy today, right here, right now. How do you try to kill your anxiety Is it by trying to gain power over your enemies? 
Maybe it's words, fights online. Are you trying to control every situation? Are you trying to escape life's difficulty through substances? Are drugs your anxiety relief for a brief moment? Or alcohol? Or lavish vacations so that you can reset until the next time you can reset? Seek instead to trust your God and his promises. Latch on to his word. Take him at his word. Wait for him to act. Cast your anxieties on him. He cares for you. He hears your prayer. And we know that the vigor of faith not just kills anxiety, but it grows security. So how does David's security grow in this psalm? It's by the name of God. It's by his helper. It's not by changing his circumstances. It's because he sees more and more who his helper is. He depended upon the character of God. We see that in verse 1. He says, oh God, save me by your name and vindicate me by your might. And we see it in verse 4. Behold, God is my helper. The Lord is the upholder of my life. His security comes from God's might wielded on his behalf. And it is God's strength that upholds David. The linchpin of this whole psalm is actually verse 4. You may notice verses 1 and 7 are a mirror of one another and two and six and three and five. And that puts four right in the middle. The first and last lines talk about the triumph of God on David's behalf. Verses two and six, David goes from prayer in verse two to praise in verse six. Verses three and five, David first lays out the problem. And then in verse five, depends on the Lord to take care of it. Now here in verse four is the center, the core. David says, behold, God is my helper. The Lord is the upholder of my life. And because that is true, the rest of the psalm is true. Because God is the upholder of his life, he can pray to him. Because God is the upholder of his life as he endures difficulty and pursuit, he can trust that God will take care of it. The ESV says, behold, to open verse four. It's a word of emphasis. Other translations say, surely. It's a word to say, listen, this is the point. God is my helper. The Lord is the upholder of my life. David knows, as we saw in Psalm three, that God is the shield about him. He knows that he lies down to sleep and he rises again because God sustains him. There is no ounce of David's life that is beyond the sovereignty of God and his wisdom. Not a hair can fall from his head without God's knowledge and direction. When all else fails, God is David's helper. David's skills cannot save him. His friends have turned their backs on him. He doesn't have all the whys to why his life is so difficult. His circumstances don't make sense. And they don't sit well with him. But there's one who is faithful. The covenant God who has initiated and sustained his relationship with David. And David appeals not just to that might of God and that power of God to fight on his behalf, but he appeals also to his character. He says in verse 1, God, save me by your name. Name is a big deal 
in this time and in this culture. God's name refers to his essence, his being. And to know his name is to know him. You've given someone claim over you in some senses when they know your name. A faint comparison here for illustration. It's like when you give someone your phone number. Like they have that, there's an implied personal relationship there. And then they have access to you and the right to contact you when they have your number. David says, God, I appeal to this relationship and I'm going to come to you personally. To this covenantal relationship and to the being and to the essence of his God. This is to what David appeals. And he depends on God's character and in so doing he finds security. As he then strengthens his faith in God by reminding himself of God's covenant promises... He is taking God at his word and his security increases even in the midst of running for his life. Yet there's more. Not only does he plead with God to come and fight for him, but he also turns to praise and to thanks in verse 6. He praises God for who he is. And you see him in verse 6. He says, I will give thanks to your name, O Lord, for it is good. His pleading has turned to praise as he reminds himself of who his God is. And he gives a free will offering. He gives sacrifice and thanks using the personal name of God, Yahweh, for it is a good name. And it is that covenant relationship that gives David hope. This free will offering, I'll take just a minute to look at what that means. This free will offering is a type of peace offering and it's to celebrate God's goodness. David chooses to celebrate God's goodness, and it's with a meal in God's presence. Sounds a lot like Psalm 23 when David says, You prepare a table before me in the presence of my enemies. David lets himself lean onto the everlasting arms that have covenanted with him, and although his life is nothing like he would have planned at this moment, he gives praise. He gives a free will offering and thanks to his God. And he calls him by his personal name, Yahweh. He doesn't let the concept of God's power remain at arm's length like we are so prone to do. He draws near and he asks the Lord to hear his plea. And he also hears the Lord's promises. And he takes them to heart and he lets them change him. And he trusts and he gives thanks and he gives praise. And when we gather together as Christians... We gather together to give thanks and praise, not just on Sunday. We gather during our family times of worship and during our private times of reading and prayer. In that, we are invited to lean anew into confidence and security in our God who invites us to call him Father. I want to paint a scene for you. Imagine a white tablecloth dinner candlelight, warm bread with an oil dip, seasoned meat, crisp vegetable sides, rich chocolate mousse cake. And now you're saying, is the sermon over yet? It's lunchtime. (laughs) Red wine with rich flavors, the best of friends around the table, laughter that lingers, a heart filled with joy. Take a step back and you'll see this table is set in a battlefield. 
Gettysburg. Cannons sounding on either side, the bullets flying by. That's the table the Lord prepares for us as we continue to live in this world with anxieties and trials. We can sit down and commune with one another and with Him. This feast before us, the Lord's Supper, is that meal. We must be here together. We must come back to this place where God renews us and refreshes us and where our faith is grown and we look to Him after a week of battle. How do you try to grow your security? Are you trying to take down those who oppose you so that you're the top dog? Are you trying to make a lot of money so that there are certain things that can't hurt you? Are you trying to make people owe you something? Are you trying to get a lot of education and experience to make yourself marketable? Instead, come and eat. Stop your striving and receive what God has given. Eat a meal with your God and with your brothers and sisters. As the bullets fly by on either side, praise him and give thanks to the one who is your security, who is your helper and the upholder of your life. As David moved forward, his strategy was not to win every battle. His strategy was to keep that eternal perspective. Verse 7. He says, for he has delivered me from every trouble and my eye has looked in triumph on my enemies. He reminds himself every time he faces a new enemy by prayer and by renewed faith that his God is his helper. You know, that's the cycle of the Christian life for you and for me to repent and believe. Receive and rest on Christ every day. Repent and have faith. Repent and have faith. We do that not just once, but every day. So how are we going to move forward in a time of trial? It's not to expect the victory, to, the battle to go our way. It's remembering that the battle has been won. It's remembering that Christ has conquered all of our enemies. And your helper is not just the concept of some God. Your helper is the one true God, Yahweh. Yahweh incarnate, Jesus of Nazareth. He is the one in whom you pray. He is the one in whom you wait. You have been delivered from every trouble in Jesus Christ. You can look in triumph on your enemies today because Jesus triumphed over your enemies for you. Sin and death have no power anymore. Jesus knows what it means to have enemies rising against him. He knows what it means to be betrayed and he knows what it means to look in perfect faith to the Father. And when you don't look in perfect faith to the Father, Jesus has done it for you. And you can look to Jesus to have done everything you need. He faced more injustice than David, more injustice than you and I will ever face. He endured it with his eyes set on his father with a faith that did not look away from the eternal goal of redeeming his people, even as those very people hunted his life and betrayed him and killed him. And in that, he was victorious. 
He defeated every enemy and he was delivered from every real eternal trouble, although his earthly life was filled with trouble and they did take his life for a time. Even Jesus, in the strength of his faith, killed his anxiety. The security was born in his father. His life was upheld by the father, even as his life was taken from him. So as you look at that tension in your family, those words that were said, that brokenness that you feel, or as you look back at what happened with your last spouse, where you think about your friends who you hoped would be there for you, where you think about your employer who won't listen and you feel like no one cares. You and I have the ability to look past these, these battles. We can remember that we have a helper in them. He's not promised to take these battles away, but he's promised that he's with us. Wait on him. Wait on Jesus. He will make all things right. All these things that have been done against you will be vindicated. Let him uphold you when everything else has brought you low. Sit down and eat with him. God might bring you a foretaste of ultimate vindication, but he might not. Let him decide and trust who he is with strength and faith. Anxiety about our life's challenges decreases. Sometimes it even dissolves. With strength and faith comes an increase of confidence, not in yourself, but an increase of confidence in your mighty warrior. With strength and faith comes security that transcends whatever people might be able to do to hurt you. With strength and faith comes the ability to praise in the midst of the trial and to see your true victory. With strength and faith comes the ability to say, like David said in verse 7, God has delivered me from every trouble. Let's join with David. Let's look in triumph on our enemies. Let's give praise to our God. Even as the enemy fights against us, we know Jesus has won the war. Jesus has looked in triumph on our enemies. Let's join and give praise and thanks even as we face another set of troubles this week. For he's delivered us and he is our helper. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, would you help us Would you strengthen our faith so that our anxiety might die and our security might grow? Would we cry out like David did in the hard times to our true helper? Would we remember that we can feast with you even as the battle rages and you will bring us home where there is no more war and where our enemies are forever gone. We look forward to seeing you face to face. Would we enjoy in the deepest of ways this communion we share with you even as we take the supper. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.